Let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Just give me a second here. Let everyone exit the stage. Get my Bible open here. This morning we will be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and specifically verses 16. On 10 through 16, we will read though, all the way through verse 24. Let us hear the word of the Lord, church. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I do not, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a keeping the commandments of the Lord. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who has called you called in the Lord, I'm sorry, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the, of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free was called an, a, as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not be bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. If you have one of these sermon guides, it may be helpful to you, but I have to admit I did something this morning when I was trying to print them off. Somehow or another, I printed the front side correct, and I got a copy of last week's back, and it's got the back from last week. So it's missing a lot of critical information, some really great questions that Jim and I worked on this week, as well as some amazing resources that I do not want you to miss out on, particularly in light of the difficulty of the text in which we're covering this morning. And because of that, I will post those this week, or I'll have Andrea post them this week with questions and everything, because I do believe based on what we're going to talk about this morning, you may be interested in further study on the issue um, this morning. So I just want to go ahead and put that out there. But the front does help you. It helps you follow along. Um, but the back, I really was excited for you to be able to have so that you could do some further reflection on your own. So today's, in our, as is our commitment each and every Sunday, is to preach sequentially through the Bible and that commitment puts us in times in front of texts that are not always easy to deal with. They are texts that, honestly, many a preacher would have choose to avoid. And I would have to admit, if I didn't have to preach this, I would not. 
but I am going to because it is what the Lord has given to us, and what God, the Lord gives us is always good. Amen? Amen. And uh, so I must admit that this text has brought a good amount of consternation to me these last couple of weeks for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and I think I want to just at least enumerate them for you for a moment, why this text brings a good amount of heaviness to my heart um, this morning. Number one is that I do have a heart to pastor you well. Along with the rest of the elders in this church, we want to walk with you and we want, to walk in a, and we want you to walk away as you engage the church and hear the God, word of God. We want you to walk away clear about what the Bible says and as well as, um, as, well as the whole theological and biblical and exegetical mindset that is likely behind Paul's own framework in the words that we're going to study this morning. All those are important, and it's so easy to get caught into so many little you know, pit stops here and there that we can then lose focus of the larger picture this morning. So there is that tension in me of making sure and desire to make sure I'm clear with you about what I 100% believe the Lord has given us in his word about the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage this morning. So I want to pastor you well, and I don't want to see anyone get caught off guard. I don't want to see anyone struggle with um, all kind, any, any manner of ways you may respond to what we're going to talk about this morning. And so this is a complex topic because it involves not just what is written in the text, but the very real lives that many of us live or have seen other people live and how we have to mine through complexities in people's lives. So I, I have that as this because every text requires me, requires our elders to pastor you. Because these are not just ethereal realities, these are very real realities that people in this room have faced or will face, or perhaps may face. We pray that they don't, but, they, but, they, uh, but the likelihood of it is it, it, it has affected many people in this room at some point. And so in an effort to pastor you well, I want to address at least two of the issues that most dominated my thinking this week that probably um, I hope you will see I want to just address on the front end. Uh, number one is the concern that you might treat an issue like divorce and remarriage as a kind of a, a kind of a, a litmus test for to, uh, for orthodoxy. So, however someone deals with this, if you don't deal with it the way that I've always been taught, or my favorite preacher taught me, or perhaps whatever else, like somehow or another, that's a test of whether or not a person is conservative or liberal. When in reality. Um, that's not the case. There's a good amount of issues we do this with, right? We do this sometimes with eschatology. I grew up in the, you know, again, you've heard me say this before, fundamentalist, independent, KJB-only Baptist. And if you were not premillennial, predispensational, I mean, dispensational, boy, you were a wicked human being. And so there's a way in which that sometimes that becomes the issue, and we begin to kind of mark people out by as tests of orthodoxy with these issues. We'll treat things like styles of music or debates on song choice as somehow or another that is a litmus test for orthodoxy. And we will we will treat people who uh, the, this conversation on whether to drink or not to drink right as a test of litmus test for orthodoxy. And and so one of my counsels I always try to do when people. Um, ask hard questions or maybe even are struggling through these issues is to basically ask them and frankly to ask myself to slow down to have humility if where the Lord will allow it and don't suppose more about the position someone espouses that may be different than yours and suppose more about what they believe in a to total way beyond what they have actually stated their position may be we tend to do this 
a person believes this, then they must be a part of this group, and they must be going this road, they must be drifting down this hill, and that's a very dangerous way to do theology. I think it's a very disobedient way to do theology, and I think it's a very disobedient way to do a scripture, because this is not a liberal or conservative issue. In fact, this is very much, in most cases, a conversation, though repeated at times, conversation between friends. I'll give you one example of that that you may or may not know about. John Piper, on one side of the debate, is one of those who is absolutely no remarriage, no divorce in any circumstances whatsoever kind of guy. John MacArthur would be in that same conversation as well. John Piper served, has served Bethlehem Baptist Church since the mid or early 80s. And one of the elders he had there for many years before he moved to Southern Seminary to be a professor was Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner happens to take the exact opposite view of John Piper, and strongly so. And he's a man who's a New Testament scholar and has been teaching my own alma mater, many alma mater, some of you guys went to Southern Seminary here, and you've probably come across Tom Schreiner in this. And he would strongly disagree and take the opposite position, and yet they were able to serve on staff and serve as elders in the same church. How about that? So let's be careful about how we deal with these things and, and, and try to think about these things as biblically as possible and process them with the information we have and try not to read in or write or add to Scripture in some places than places we shouldn't. So you may know the issue. You may know the broad construct already, but let me just state them out there first. There's usually two camps, and no, one's, no one camp's monolithic, but there's usually two camps. There's the camp of no remarriage, no divorce under any circumstances. So some of the more popular names that you know, again, mentioned John MacArthur, I mentioned John Piper, Wayne Grudem would be in this position in, in some respects himself. Um, historically speaking, going beyond some of the modern voices, there really aren't any who support this position. Uh, you go back to the Puritans, you go back to the Reformers, and it's really, it's really silent on this issue. I was actually kind of struck by the fact of how silent it was once you get past the last 30 or 40 years. And I'll, that's, that was interesting to me. In fact, if you wanted to find voices that supported this position, you had to be Roman Catholic to find this position. Almost all the Reformers and Puritans actually, and, and particularly guys like John, McCa John Calvin and his uh, successors actually took the opposite position. And so that's one side of it. And by the way, I'm not saying that there's not voices out there in church history. I just haven't found significant ones. I haven't found ones that I felt like were compelling to me. And, uh, and, and that's where it was. Then there's the remarriage camp. It says that remarriage and divorce are, uh, they are provisions made in the scriptures. They are provisions made biblically by God for sinners. And with some exceptions, they are viable realities. And so modern voices for this, R.C. Sproul. I know a lot of Sproul people in this room, right? And I was shocked by that one. David Instone Brewer, Alistair Begg, Ligon Duncan. If you know any of these guys, historic voices, John Calvin, his successor, Theodore Beza, held to this position. The great Puritan, one of the greatest theologians of the Puritan age, Thomas Watson, held to this position. John Murray, the great Princeton uh, American Presbyterian theologian who then helped start Westminster Seminary because of the liberal drift of Princeton held to this position. And so just wanted you to say, I say all of this not to necessarily load up, but to say that this is a conversation among people who really love the Bible and take it seriously. And there may be people in this room who take a different position, and that's okay. And we can have good, loving, grace-generated debates on the issue. That's the first reason why I wanted to, that's my consultation, is that we would turn this into a litmus test for orthodoxy, and it's not. Number two, it would be 
to allow the complex teaching on what I believe scripture says about the permissibility of divorce and perhaps even remarriage in specific situations to justify a rash response about the future of one's marriage. So then you might be in here and because of the emotions and the things that you have experienced in your life or maybe someone close to you is experiencing in their marriage, you may see this and go, wait, wait a minute, pastor just said I have an option. And that would be very disheartening if that is a rash response. I want you and your pastors want you to be careful with your heart. They want you to be careful with the fact that, and we'll talk a moment here, that marriage is a good and sacred and lifelong endeavor. Even if there is provisions for divorce. Even if there is permission for remarriage. You don't want to add fuel to the fire. Simply because you may be or have known someone who's in a difficult situation presently or in the past. So I'm going to put my cards on the table, and I want to say up front when I put my cards on the table here, I am not speaking on any official position of the church. I'm not speaking on any official position necessarily that the elders have worked out. We, we, our, our position in general is every situation is complex, and we're going to take the biblical data we can to go into it and help them, pastor them well to the right decisions as we can see it in that particular situation. But I am going to outline, I think, some biblical, broad biblical constructs that I think have informed the second view, which is where I would land, land with guys like R.C. Sproul and Calvin, Theodore, Beza, and whatnot. So let me just state my position. Let's get on with it. I'll do my best to run through this as fast as I can, but I will probably spend a little bit of time. I want to slow down because at the end of the day, having that framework will help us then service as we get into Paul's text here in a little bit. Okay? I don't think I can just jump into Paul's text and not try to, as best I can, understand what Paul's bringing into that text as we know from scripture revealed in scripture and what jesus himself taught okay so number one we want to say this marriage is sacred and it is meant to be lifelong genesis 2 24 therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh it is part of the very design the reality is when we talked about singleness and marriage last a couple of weeks ago um, the reality is that I said then, we, <laughs> the majority of people, Christians, will get married. And it is part of the, part of the good design God has for men and women and that, that, and that they would be, they'd be part of the whole filling the earth and making it good and whatnot. And Jesus clearly concurs with this. Mark 10, 2 through 10, the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and wife and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So, no, so they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Mark, I mean, Matthew 19 has the same incident and he has his own version which is very similar but i think there's a, a very key difference that matthew notes about this conversation that's not always evident in mark mark is always right, right 
wrote very briefly. He didn't expand on things. He assumed a lot of knowledge on his readers, where Matthew says, let's not assume that. Let's talk about what Jesus is actually responding to, okay? And we'll get into that. But Matthew 19, 5 through 9, therefore a man shall leave his father and wife. I'm sorry, he, he has the same question there in verse, as we see in Mark uh, 2. Um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Actually, what the question was, was in Matthew, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason or any cause? That is actually what Jesus is responding to. We'll get into more of that here in a moment. And Jesus responds the exact same way and then gives the exceptions as we find there in verses 8 and 9. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there's Paul, uh, I mean, sorry, Matthew outlines some exceptions and expands on what the question actually entails, which is divorce for any reason. That's the actual question Jesus is dealing with. Again, we'll plug into that a little bit more here in just a few moments. So marriage is certainly sacred, it's certainly of high value, and it should be kept with preeminence with God's people. And it is something that we should never take lightly. And yet, as I believe the scriptures have been clear about, marriage, like all conditional covenants in the Bible, okay, it is not an unconditional covenant. Because it's not one party, unconditional covenants are one party keeps all the covenant commitments, i.e., the covenant of grace. God keeps all the covenant commitments for us. I don't keep all the covenant commitments for my marriage. And my wife doesn't keep all the covenant commitments. It's a conditional covenant. It's you keep yours, I'll keep mine. God will bless it. It'll move on. Will you break it? Well, then you, the thing dissolves. And so that's my second point. Marriage, like all co conditional covenants, can be dissolved on the grounds of covenant unfaithfulness to one party's failure to keep the covenant agreement. In other words, Though marriage, and we know this, this is where we get kind of get all, it gets really confusing and gets kind of wonky, is that we know marriage, Ephesians 5 and other places, talks about this kind of typological, right, aspect of marriage, where our marriages are to reflect who? Christ and the church. We know this. And so then sometimes what we'll do is we'll write into this conditional covenant some kind of spiritual, eternal realities, when in reality it actually doesn't. And we'll talk about the text that people tend to use to lead to that here in just a moment. Marriage, though it does play this function of pointing to a Christ in the church, is yet still a conditional covenant and is treated as such in the Bible by virtue of the provisions of divorce. The fact that the Bible actually gives provisions for divorce in the law of Moses actually kind of proves that there is, there is a sense in which that covenant is broken and dissolved. Marriage does not continue on in some spiritual way after the covenant has been broken uh, again looking at matthew verse uh, matthew 19 6 for a position i think sometimes people will look at matthew verse 6 of chapter 19 in matthew for a position on the permanence of jesus's teachings um, but when you take a closer look at that text and look at verse 6 uh, of that it's uh it, it, he'll look at it and say they are no longer two but one flesh where that what therefore god has joined together let no man Separate. So, they'll, so, so the, the line of thinking typically goes something like this. God is saying that there's a spir spiritually permanent reality in marriage, so don't break it. It's not, you're not allowed to break it. It's never broken. The actual reality, when you look at the Greek, is actually, no, there's an imperative there. Therefore, so it says, because of your hardness of heart, God allowed you to divorce. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, divorce. 
I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong text here. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. They no longer are two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let is an imperative. Let, don't, don't separate. Don't be guilty of causing the separation of your marriage. Don't be guilty of the dissolution of your marriage. Don't be the one who found to fall short of your covenant responsibilities. What God is saying there is he's actually elevating marriage more than he is He's de-elevating it. He's, he's actually saying to the people, you're asking me about divorce. My question to you is, marriage is a sacred thing. Are you doing everything in your power to keep your side of the covenant? Before we talk about divorce, let's talk about that. And if, you, if it all possible, you do your part and you keep the covenant and you try to forgive and you try to repent. Live like a Christian in your marriage. In other words, the party should work hard to hold up their end of the covenant for a lifetime. That's what Jesus is actually saying in that text. Jesus is effectively saying, before you talk the talk about divorce, I want to know if you're upholding what marriage is supposed to be. Are you doing your part? Don't come to me about quasi-questions about can a man divorce his wife under any circumstances for any cause. I'll get more into that here in just a few moments. So then, marriage is sacred and it's supposed to be lifelong, yet it's still a conditional covenant that can be dissolved on the grounds of the covenant of faithfulness because we have permission for divorce. Divorce, though sad and undesirable and should be avoidable, is allowable in cases of infidelity and, of course, we'll see later in desertion. The question is, for many people, is then what is divorce? If you, if you tend to, and I took this position for a very, very long time, there's permanence view of marriage, that it's unbreakable, and that somehow or another it continues regardless if the marriage bound, bonds have been broken from a divorce standpoint, that there's kind of this view that basically, no, you actually are not technically divorced. You're actually still married to the person that you are. And so basically what divorce becomes is kind of like this quasi-spiritual separation. But is that what the Bible teaches about divorce? I don't think so. I think that actually divorce, when you study the Near Eastern history, it shows us that divorce were provisions, the divorce provisions in Israel, Israelite teaching and Jewish teaching in the law of Moses were actually quite progressive. That they would even allow a certificate of divorce in light of all the other surrounding nations who would never allow for a certificate of divorce because it was such a male-dominated society. That the Israelites were so concerned with the rights and the concerns for the, the innocent party and the welfare of women and children. They provided this means not because they, wanted, that, that they were trying to say that you should make ease, marriage dissolve easily, but because they were trying to protect innocent parties from people who took advantage of their marriages for men who took advantages of their marriages. And so Israel and the law of Moses actually were quite like, uh, 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 I don't want to think of what I want to say. They were, again, quite progressive for the other cultures around them because they wanted to take care of those who were, who were being mistreated, mistreated, particularly women and children. See, in the Middle Eastern culture, men could divorce their wives for any reason and they could leave their wives defenseless with no property, no nothing, send them off. And here's what's worse. Most men would not want to remarry these women. Why? Because the original husband would have rights if he decided one day to change his mind, come back in and say, actually, she's mine. I'm, I want her back because those young men right there are strapping young lads and they could be benefiting me on my farm. You see what I'm saying? And so law of Moses comes in and says, that's wrong. 
and that's not okay. And so when a man walks away from his divorce, he's the guilty party for doing it in such a superficial way. We got to protect the innocent party here. And so when he gives her a certificate of divorce, that tells the man that would, would marry her, you're good. And she's yours in a new covenant. And you can raise these children in the admonition of the Lord. That's the idea that we see in the law of Moses and what has been carried out. Divorce certificates protected the innocent party and allowed them to legally move on with their lives without concern of future repercussions. We see this in Deuteronomy 22. I don't have time to get into it. Deuteronomy 24 gets into it. Deuteronomy 22 actually calls out a husband who tries to make up reasons to divorce his wife for no reason. And he makes all these scandalous you know, accusations that she wasn't a virgin when he got married. And the father of the bride goes, wait a minute, I can testify to the fact that she wasn't, that she was a, she was a virgin. And when, he's found, when this husband's been found to be guilty of doing things wrongly, the law of Moses says he has to pay a price for that. And then in, verse 20, and in chapter 24, the law of Moses says to a man, if you're going to do it, you have to do it on real reasons, and particularly sexual infidelity. Okay? This is why Jesus provides this exception in sexual infidelity, and, and then, we, of course, we add Paul's addition of desertion. That there were legitimate reasons to offer a that you could offer a divorce certificate, and it also must be known here in verse and going back to to Jesus's words there in chapter 19 of Matthew is that he is not addressing divorce as a whole unit. He's not addressing all things that related to divorce here. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, he's being asked about a specific aspect of the debate between two rabbinic schools in his time. You may know what these are. Maybe you don't know who these are. There's the Hillel school, which is a more progressive school, which would become the more popular school culturally. And the Hillel school basically took the tack that, that Deuteronomy 24 allows for divorce for any reason. It's kind of like the no-fault divorce of our day. And so Jesus is being asked by these Pharisees, so where do you stand on this, Jesus? Which one of our tribes are you going to run with? And Jesus clearly arrives at the school, the other school, the Shammai school, that says, no, man, no, there's very limited reasons why a divorce certificate should be offered. And, and he comes in and he says, well, I'm, I'm kind of with that school, with the exception of, divorce, with exception of sexual morality, but he adds more to it. He's really telling both schools, you're kind of talking about the wrong thing. The real reason why divorce would happen is that there's sin in the heart of mankind and it breaks marriages. You got selfish men, you got selfish women, and they will not work to actually live as Christ would have them live. And so you're getting the cart before the horse. It's really what he's telling both schools here. I love this. And so he's dealing with this question of any reason divorce. He's not actually dealing with divorce and making prescriptions about divorce that somehow or another if a person gets remarried afterwards that they're all committing infidelity he's actually not speaking at all he's actually saying no the person who divorces unjustly without a real biblical reason for divorce they're living in infidelity because again the exception is sexual morality for jesus so he envisions a reason why there would be an exception to the rule and someone will say well how does that exception, how does that actually work out? Well, it's because it's an exception that the law of Moses outlined and Jesus himself is picking up on that tradition. So when Jesus in verse 9 of Matthew 19 says that remarriage is infidelity, he's responding to the any cause debate, not biblical concessions for sinners and particularly provisions for remarriage for their innocent party. So that's where I, that's kind of my take. 
That's, and I think that take is very biblical, very Protestant. It goes right through, and it lines with all the memes I mentioned up here earlier. But I just want to give it and set it out there for you. One, marriage is sacred, should be protected at all costs. <coughs> Yet it is, still, excuse me, it is still a covenant that can be broken. And there are provisions in the Mosaic Law and God's provisions to give a certificate of divorce under limited perspective. And therefore, when you are in divorce, you are free to move on with your life. And it can include, at times, at times, in limited situations, um, remarriage. So that's my basic view. <coughs> and it's, um, I, I think it's really consistent to all the things I've just mentioned to you earlier. Again, it's not the official position per se. It's, a, it's, a, it's an open conversation. We're going to walk through these kinds of things. And we would certainly invite you to um, come and talk about it if, if it's. I want to put that out there for you. Um, and so I just want to put that out there as clearly as I could from the, from, the, from the very beginning. That I'm available if you want to go and have more conversations, but my time will not allow me to go in much deeper than what I've already done. And so the reason why, the primary reason I didn't give you this is because I think this, as I understand scripture, and as I understand this and how the other thinkers have written this apostolic scripture, they all concur that you have to have that framework to really understand what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is addressing there in 1 Corinthians 7, he's bringing theological, biblical, and exegetical framework to it. And I believe what I've laid out is actually consistent to what Paul would be thinking about this particular situation. So let's now move our attention to 1 Corinthians 7 for a few moments. Let's again read, just pick up in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. You remember a couple weeks ago, we did some important work, and I'm just going to do a quick reminder of what that was, that Paul was addressing a particular issue in the local church. And what is that particular issue? That as it regards sex and marriage and whatnot and singleness, there was this kind of pietism that was setting into the church. And it said, look, for me to be really devoted to the Lord, maybe marriage is a hindrance to that. Maybe sex is a hindrance to that. And Paul comes in and says, nope, there's goodness in sex, there's goodness in marriage, and there's goodness in singleness. That's the best way I can, I can actually have. Oh, thank you, Ben. I could really use that right now. The problem was that many Christians were either too cavalier in Paul's day about this issue and they just touted their sexual freedom or they were adding a kind of pietism and a legalism to their understanding of Christian faith and they would say well for me to be really devoted to the Lord I gotta prove this so I just gotta abstain from all these kinds of things and so married couples were opting out of the gift of sex and virtually living celibate lives and singles were lives were um and, and they basically living single lives under the same roof all driven from a desire to be more holy and devoted to the Lord and so Paul's instructions are clear, and that's why I went ahead and read 17 through 24, but I'll just read the first verse. The main principle that Paul wants to get at here is this. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. That's the real principle undergirding all of this. If you're married and you're saved, live like a saved married person. If you're, married, if you're single... And, and, you're, and, you're, and, and, you're, uh, and you're saved, then live as a saved single person. But if you want to get married, get married. Right? That's what Paul is saying. He's, he's, he's dispelling this nonsense of trying to use Jesus as a reason to, 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 to walk away from a very good God-created institution. So what is important for our consideration 
of Paul's instructions about divorce and remarriage is that we understand a couple of things from what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Paul is not expanding, expounding, again, just like Jesus wasn't in Matthew 19. He's not expounding and applying a broad vision for divorce and remarriage in these texts. Sometimes we want to like read these texts and we want to apply them way more broadly than what Paul is actually addressing here. He's actually got a limited scope here. He's focusing on two primary groups, married Christians who want to divorce a, a Christian spouse. That's the first section. And then he's going to deal with Christians who are married to non-Christians. And he gives instructions to both. Let's look at the instructions to married Christians considering divorce. I just read it. I'll read it again. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Not I, but the Lord. Verse 10. And then you'll notice when we get to verse 12, not the Lord, but I. <laughs> I say this, but the Lord didn't say this. And so uh, some have assumed that what Paul is doing in those verse 10 and verse 12 is that he's distinguishing between, well, what Jesus said is really authoritative, and I'm just kind of adding my opinion here. No. <laughs> That's a poor take on this text. What Paul is doing is distinguishing between what Jesus has already outlined and established in his own teaching on the basis of Mosaic teaching, and he's now saying, now I'm expanding on that, and I'm giving you more authoritative teaching through the Holy Spirit on the issue of divorce and remarriage, particularly for the grounds that you are asking about. Namely, the divorce for any reason, he's taking the same idea here that Jesus has already been dealing with. Divorce for any reason is, is silly, it's heinous, and it makes a mockery of God's good design for marriage. In other words, he's saying, Christian, you're married to another Christian, and you want to get divorced for the purposes of being more holy and devoted to the Lord? Well, that's just silly. That does not qualify for the qualify for a biblical reason to get divorced. It doesn't meet the criteria for the exceptions here. You want to get, he says, you should remain, the unmarried, um, sorry, should not, he's basically telling them the married, he gives this charge, the Lord has already established this, is what he's saying. The wife should not separate from her husband or else be reconciled to him. Um, but if she does, she should remain unmarried and or else be reconciled to her husband. In other words, he's saying to you, if you choose to go down this path, and divorce a married spouse, a Christian spouse, you have two options when it all plays out. You can either choose to be unmarried the rest of your life, because this is not a biblical reason to get divorced, or you're going to have to go back and be re uh, reconciled with, the, with your spouse that you left. What you have to understand here is this instruction is not for the innocent party. It's for the guilty party. The innocent party who was left and abandoned here is actually going to have be, the, the, the application of what we're going to find later on is actually applies to them. If they go back and want to be, let's just say they change their mind and want to get married again, they go back to the spouse. Well, that spouse has been free to go move on. And they may not have the option to get married. And so Paul is saying here with Jesus, you better take very, 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 be very, very careful about this. If you choose to get divorced, you'll only have two choices. You remain unmarried or you better hope he'll want to take you back. Or she'll take you back. Um, he's not making a broad sweeping call here. He's not at all saying to all people in all places who get divorced for any reason whatsoever are not free to get remarried. He's saying in this situation, you're basically saying I can get divorced for any reason I want to. And he's saying, no, you can't. And here's the consequences of that. If you're a Christian. 
Your desire for divorce for the reasons you are outlined does not meet the smell test. It does not meet the desire for divorce legitimate. And he goes further to help them grasp the consequences. If you did, right? If you're on, if you if you if you if you do, you have to be remarried, remain unmarried, or you have to be hoping that you can be reconciled to your spouse. He's actually not. He's not saying. Uh, he's not giving instruction. He's saying this is going to be the outcome for you. This is what you can expect. And so then he gives second second part here. He gives instructions to married Christians. Christians who are married to unbelievers. We see this in verse 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So I'm adding on the corpus of everything the Lord's already established because of the Holy Spirit through me that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce, he, should, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, Paul comes back and he's distinguishing between what God, Jesus has already established now, and he's now bringing more clarity through the Spirit and the inspiration of the Spirit to this issue when it comes to desertion. And he's not differentiating himself from Jesus and saying, well, Jesus has the real authority. That's not what's happening here. And what he says to them is this, Christian man, Christian woman, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay in the marriage. If, it, it's a good marriage. Just because they're not believers doesn't mean it's not a holy marriage. Stay in the marriage. Why? Because they're made holy. They're sanctified by your presence in that home. Amen. That doesn't mean they're going to get saved. But what it means is that they have every opportunity to get saved. If you remain in that marriage, if they can sit with you, you can have a good marriage with an unbelieving partner. If you are married, you guys say, this is talking to people who've gotten converted, and one spouse gets converted, and the other one doesn't, and they're thinking, well, maybe this is an unholy marriage. Think about the Jewish person back in the day. If they were to marry a Gentile, they would automatically, that marriage would be unholy, right? Be unclean. And what Paul's doing is reversing it and saying, no, actually, your presence with the gospel through the Holy Spirit actually makes your marriage holy. And you give them every opportunity to get saved, to be sanctified. Now, that is not saying that a Christian should consciously marry an unbeliever. Okay? Please see the difference? He's saying that a Christian who happens to be married to an unbeliever because they got converted and the other one didn't, you can still be in a good marriage. And you can have a happy marriage. And y'all can live happily under the household. And y'all can still be fruitful and multiply because all marriage is good. Whether it's Christian or it's not, it's an institution God gives to the world. And it should be held, as I've already mentioned, in high esteem. And he says, your children will benefit from it too. They'll see a mother who's, or, a husband, or a father who's humble and loves and sacrificially serves the unbelieving spouse. And they'll see your benefit and they will see the gospel power in your life. And perhaps they will be converted too. Beautiful, right? How do you know whether or not your presence in their life might lead them to salvation? How do you know? But if the unbelieving spouse wishes to leave though there's no nobility in trying to save a marriage that can't be saved if if the unbeliever wants to walk away from the marriage or perhaps it's someone who says they're a christian but they're acting like an unbeliever and they want to walk away from the marriage you are not under any obligation to try to save the marriage 
You're not stained. You're not marred. You're not unholy for doing so. Actually, Paul says, you are free. You're no longer enslaved there in verse 15. And what he means by enslaved means the bounds of that marriage no longer apply to you. Because, why? The biblical provisions for, uh, for divorce certificates annul, it dissolves that covenant, and therefore you can now live at peace. And here's what he means by that. If you choose to remain single the rest of your life, remain single. If you choose to live free and your conscience is clear and you've been evaluating and got the right counsel around your pastors and elders and, and, and churchmen then, and, and, and do it slowly, I would recommend that, then you are free to do so as well. The marriage is really dissolved and is no longer some abiding spiritual reality over your life. I believe that's exactly what Paul is trying to teach here. I think it's important for us to recognize it and how, how, how this affects how we will pastor and care for one another when these situations, if these situations arise. You've got to understand a couple of things here. Again, I just want to reiterate them because I, don't, I just want to be as plain as I possibly can. Marriage should be held in high esteem and it should be worked at and worked at and worked at. And when I sit down and when our elders sit down with a married couple who's going through it, I'm going to look at both of them and say, are you working out your marriage like a Christian? Work hard. But there are times because of sin in the world and its provision is made there where a spouse sins and lives an unrepentant life for so long that sometimes it just takes such a toll on a marriage that it just seems like the marriage can't be reconciled. And it's grievous, and the Lord hates it. See, God, God can hate something but still allow provisions for it in a sinful world. You know that, right? He does this for us all the time. The fact that we have the Lord's table is an absolute, like, he understands we're going to live sinfully and struggle and different things like this, but he allows this table to be here to remind us that we can participate and come to this table, and it's a provision that will go away one day. We won't be taking this in the new heavens and new earth. But it's an accommodation to us now. Why? Because sinners need to be reminded of the gospel constantly. Amen. And God does the same thing for us. He makes provisions for sinners, and sometimes they're grievous decisions for sinners. Do you understand that even God, in some ways, is a divorcee because Israel's adultery to him? And he talks like that sometimes in the prophets? And he hates it? He hates that his bride has committed spiritual adultery to him? That language is in Scripture. Hosea and all these things. These are, these are real Scriptures. Now, they, we have to be careful that we don't make those and do some kind of broad application from that into this modern time, but modern mind, but this is really, really important. Why would Paul give this instruction, though? This is where I want to land the plane for a few minutes, and then we're going to be done. Why would Paul give this to him? Is it just simply to give them instructions on how to deal with this issue? No, he's actually coming in, and he's got a gospel hope behind it. And it comes out of 17 through 24. Again, I read the first verse. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which the God has called him. And this is my rule in all the churches. And anyone at the time of the, he was, you know, if you were circumcised, don't try to be uncircumcised. If you're not circumcised, don't, you know, he gives you all these different examples. Here's the first guiding principle, gospel principle that Paul gives us. True devotion to the Lord is to be lived within the boundaries of what God has sovereignly ordered in our lives. So Christian, if you're married, the instruction is do everything you can to stay married and honor the Lord in it. Single, 
Stay single, honor the Lord, and do everything you can there. If you find yourself divorced, it, it, it gets a little more murky and complicated, but I think in great care, in all things, whatever decisions we make, we must do to honor the Lord in it. Live as you are. God is not surprised by where you are. He loves you where you are. And he has gospel hope for you where you are. And I would encourage you to have that same gospel hope. And I would encourage you to bring that same gospel hope to people who find themselves in very, very difficult places in life, particularly as it relates to marriage. The second gospel guiding principle that I think Paul would want us to walk away from here with is this. Live in peace. Live freely. Whether you're married, divorced, or single, live in peace. Married, live. Married? Yeah. Live as you are. Single, live as you are. Divorced, live as you are. Live in the freedom of grace and the gospel. Stand before the Lord holy. Let him do as he wishes with you in those circumstances. And trust that he has good for you, both now and in the age to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, what a hard text to get through. And Father, even though there are so many parts of this that I wish I could just spend time digging into and mining into it. It just wouldn't be prudent this morning, but I pray that at the end of the day we leave here this morning not having our hearts fixed with minutia details, but our hearts fixed on the gracious provisions of our God so that we can live freely and we can live with a hope and wonder in the perfect work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. These are hard things. In every situation, every circumstance, God requires diligent, careful shepherding. And we pray that that will be what we do here in response to what we see in this text. Father, help us now as we leave. Help us as we get prepared for the Lord's table. May our hearts be full of joy as we come forward this morning. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.